Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. I am excited today. I'm excited for you. I'm excited for who you're about to hear. I've said this several times. Every time I preach, you're not only influenced by me, you're influenced by everybody who's influenced me. Whether it's a commentary I've read, a scholar I've consulted, some relationship that I have that kind of is funneled through me to you at that moment and that God's people deserve to know who's influencing their pastor. And on rare occasions, I get to share one of those people with you personally by inviting them here. And so today is one of those days. And, and more exciting still is that my friend Chris Seipel embodies one of the chief values that we try to instill here at Covenant. And that's this, that it really is the whole church called to bring glimpses of the kingdom of God to the world. The church isn't about the pastors. It isn't about the ministers. We're really the midwives more so than the stars of the show. And so you serve the Lord through your profession, your area of expertise. Your So, so the kingdom is seen clearly all over the world throughout every domain of society that, that God intends to redeem. And Chris has done that with his life. He's not a pastor. In fact, on the average Sunday, he's sitting where you are with his family who's with him here today at the First Baptist Church of Warrington, Virginia. But I have watched him. I've been in context with him across oceans in other nations, and I have seen him pastor. Chris is a shepherd at heart, even though he may not hold the office. And I've watched him do that in every area where God has placed him. And in his life, that has included service in the United States Marine Corps. It's included work for and with our own government, more particularly helping advise our own State Department in how to relate to various religious communities around the world. He's currently the President Emeritus of the Institute for Global Engagement. He's a senior fellow at the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. But one of the things I appreciate most about this brother is I go to him when I want to know what's really going on. Uh, you know, I've told you guys to stay off of social media, right, when it comes to figuring out what's going on in the world. I will make one caveat to that, especially when there's something going on off of our shores, and I'm not quite sure how to make of it. And I know that cable news, either on the right or on the left, is just going to be an exercise in lighting my own hair on fire. I go to Chris Seiple's Twitter feed, and I will find something reasonable there. But moreover, I'm going to find a brother in Christ who helps me understand the world that Jesus died to save. And I believe we're all going to leave today with a greater love for that world. Would you help me welcome Dr. Chris Seipel? All right. Good morning, Covenant. It's good to be a shepherd in Shepherdstown. Uh, and thank you, Joel, for that kind uh, introduction. And I also want to say, cognizant of the fact that uh, Friday was Veterans Day, uh, thank you to our veterans, past and present, who have served. And, and maybe there's some future veterans in the audience as well. Um, Joel referenced that I was in the Marine Corps. I am the fourth of eight Marines in two generations in my family. So, well, that's probably worthy of some applause, yes. 
So I, I, I would be remiss in my duties if I didn't share with you that there was another day last week before Veterans Day, the 11th of November. Do we know what day that was? It was the 10th of November, yes, 10th before 11th, and it was the Marine Corps birthday. And you know, we Marines are always trying to one-up everybody, so we got the day before Veterans Day <laughs> because we think we're better. Because we are. <laughs> I can't help it. So let's get all that off the table first before we start preaching, huh? But we, we have Veterans Day. We have these days of mem- commemoration for our veterans and those who serve our communities around the country because we take our American citizenship seriously. And we've got a lot of issues in our country. We can gripe about this personality or this policy, but there's 38% of the world that is not free, according to Freedom House, who does this global index. 38% of the world would love the opportunity to be in a place of worship of their choice and have an opportunity to vote. So we gripe with gratitude. (laughs) We gripe because we care and we take our American citizenship seriously. This American citizenship, I believe, is a gift from God that we steward in the context of two other citizenships. Uh, One is global, and the other is kingdom. Now, what do I mean by global citizenship? Well, for God so loved the world, right? He created it. He created it, and we know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes... That's why we're here. The whosoever doctrine is the greatest statement about a global God, the most inclusive statement on diversity ever made. Whosoever. It does not matter your race, your region, your religion. If you believe he is the Son of God, risen, reigning, and returning, you will have eternal life. This is a global God. He cares for everybody. He made everybody in his image. And this is a choice that he gives each of us. This is something Baptists take particularly seriously because religious freedom is at the heart of much of what we do. He's also a global God. He reminds us in Acts 1.8, he says this, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, to the ends of the earth. Global. A global God requiring global engagement. And the purpose of the church is to be those witnesses. He requires global action. So we've got an American citizenship, a national citizenship, we've got a global citizenship, but then we've got a kingdom citizenship. And Paul is very particular about this, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, these four verses or five, but let me read it to you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It doesn't say some of us. It says us. We have each been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So if we're ambassadors, that means we're delivering a message. The message is the gospel What does that mean? Well, I think it exists at three levels. One is at the individual level, John 3.16, so that you have eternal life. John says at the end of his gospel, verse 31, chapter 20, 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Full stop. That's it. It's not complicated. Forget about the theology. That's what we're about. That's the gospel. Deliver that message. But there's a second level, which is this historic global context across time and space that God created of delivering the message as his ambassador. And the most succinct statement of this level was made by Paul in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 8. He says this, Remembering Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. If Jesus Christ isn't risen, then this is a big joke, right? If the tomb's not empty, forget about it. We've been fooled. So that's the first part. But Paul very intentionally links it back to what we call the Old Testament, descended from David. That means God's acting intentionally across time and space to redeem his world. And the answer is going to come from the Jews. No Jews, no Jesus. And he's acting through the Jews, the apple of his eye, to reach Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles, for his purpose. And take comfort in that. This is not some willy-nilly thing that gets made up. There is a plan in place. Now, here's the third level. We're not going to dwell on this today, but I think it's important to remember because I'm, I actually always forget about this level, and it makes me feel rather humble. Paul says in Ephesians 3.10, and 11, God's intent was now through the church, that's you, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So while we're witnessing to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, delivering the message that he is the risen, reigning, and returning king, there are heavenly realms that are watching our witness. What do you do with that? I don't know. <laughs> but it's happening. It's all the more reason to take your witness seriously. So we've got these three citizenships, national, American, global, and kingdom. Now, what does it mean to be an ambassador? Paul does not choose this word willy-nilly when, he, when he's talking about this. Let me make uh, some points about an ambassador. Ambassadors are point people who have been intentionally educated how to think and trained what to do. You just don't show up and all of a sudden you're an ambassador. You've got to be formed and educated about practical application before you go and represent the king. Okay? They're intentionally educated. Ambassadors are excellent. This is no place for the junior varsity. Nothing against the junior varsity. Junior varsity is where you get formed. And you think about practical applications so you can be on the varsity and represent the king with excellence. And believe you me, in a world mired in mediocrity, yearning for meaning, excellence attracts. Excellence is evangelism. Do everything is unto the Lord. So an ambassador has been educated. He or she is excellent. Ambassadors are not their own. They belong to the king. Ambassadors are sent. 
These things should be obvious as you think about this word, but I just want to drive it home at the most basic level. Ambassadors engage where they've been assigned. None of the verses from 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20 say uh, only these missionaries. It's all of us in the place where we are. Which is to say, your vocation, your job, your location, where you live, that's your place of ambassadorship. That's where you've been assigned. You're supposed to engage there. You're an ambassador of reconciliation who happens to serve in the military, who happens to teach elementary school, who happens to be in the police department, who happens to be a preacher at a church. This is the ministry given to all of us. And so if you think that missions is something where you support people over there, well, that's good. But that's two-dimensional because you're the missionary. We're all missionaries. We're all ambassadors. There's no missions. There's only one mission. You're an ambassador of reconciliation. Bloom where you are in the vocation, location that God has given you. Two more characteristics of an ambassador. The verses assume that where you are is where you are. You have to serve there. It doesn't say, hey, when you get that raise, when I move to this place, when I get this other job, when I get to play this play part of the orchestra and not this part, when I get this position on the team and not that part, that's when I'll do it. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying God doesn't call you to other things in life and that you should prepare and pray about those things. But until he's notified you, you bloom in that spot. You don't get a choice about that. The book of Revelation says three times, I want the church to have patient endurance. Be an ambassador in your vocation and in your location. The church grows in the first three centuries because the Christians didn't run from war, from, pest, from uh, famine. They stayed and they had compassion with, they suffered with the people. So there's no whining. We're supposed to be there. Now here's the other thing about ambassadors. They don't get to change the message. You represent the king. The message is the same. But what ambassadors do get to do and what the Lord expects of his ambassadors is you get to decide and discern when and how you deliver the message according to the freedom of conscience that he's given you, according to the mind that he's given you, the capacity to think about faith and reason. You can influence depending on how you do it, for the better or for the worse. So this is the purpose of today's talk. How do we actually, no kidding, engage as the ambassadors? That's what we're going to talk about. So let me summarize this uh, brief introduction here in, the, in this way. The body of Christ cannot be reduced to a building. It's not a building you go to on Sunday and that's it. The body is a living network of believers perfectly, perfectly prepositioned in every vocation and location. We just need to think that way. But we don't. 
It's perfectly positioned for this time, right now, in every vocation location, because that's where you're called to be an ambassador. And the church's job is to prepare us to be ambassadors, to be missionaries. Now, this is my language, and I'm not a theologian, but this is how I think about it. The church's job is to edify and equip in the walls in order to engage outside it. Edify means spiritually form. Equip means thinking about practical application. And engage means you go do it and you use your vocation location. If you don't like that alliteration, I can give you a rhyme. The church says preach and teach inside the walls so you can reach. Preach and teach to reach, edify and equip to engage. I don't care how you think about it, but that's our role as the members inside as a body talking to itself. This is what we're supposed to do. So what are the no-kidding steps? I think Jesus gives us a 3D model. Three-dimensional, but also 3Ds, literally. Uh, He teaches us how to decide, how to discern, and how to disciple through the Scripture that I'm going to read again, actually. Um, And this is what I want to talk about today. So please pray with me now. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom to gather. Thank you for the freedom to... Uh, worship your name, to freely choose to worship your name, to freely choose to glorify you. We understand that not everyone has this freedom worldwide, and we particularly lift up the church that suffers in your name, patiently enduring, because that's where they're called to be. We also thank you, Lord, that you tore the Holy of Holies, that all ground is holy ground. We don't need a priest except our high priest Jesus to come to you and serve you as your ambassador. So teach us how to decide to discern and disciple according to the model that you give us in John 4, and let these words be your words, your words for your people. Okay. Now, not that Joel did a bad job reading the Scripture, but let me read it again, because I want to make some, emphasize some points. And we're going to skip part of John 4 because that's when the disciples come back. And I want to focus just on how Jesus engages the Samaritans, okay? So starting with verse uh, 4, now he had to go to Samaria. He came to a town, Samaria, called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Samaritan woman came to him. She's there. She's still standing, presumably, because she's about to take water out of the well. And says, uh, and Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy the food. Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew. <laughs> I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then there's this wonderful diplomatic parenthetical statement, for Jews did not associate with Samaritans. TV timeout, let's translate that. They hated each other, okay? They hated each other. Now, just to give a potentially brief example, and I realize I could offend everybody with this, given the license plates in the parking lot. But if you're a West Virginia mountaineer, a Samaritan's kind of like some fiendish, orkin mix of Pittsburgh Panther, Virginia Hokey, Virginia Tech Hokey, and a little sprinkling of Maryland turp. You don't mind if they suffer. It's okay. We can let that pass. Okay? They do not like each other. 
Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She's the most pragmatic person here. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well's deep. Where are you going to get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his son and even his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. I have to keep coming back here to draw the water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And oh, by the way, the man you're with now, not your husband either. What you said is quite true. Woman's unfazed. <laughs> Sir, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, and she's referring to Mount Gerizim, which is off in the distance where the Samaritans had built a temple that the Jews tore down 160 years prior to this conversation. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in the truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I the one, who, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now we jump down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his word, there were many more believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Okay. Let's do a translation of this whole thing. Jesus is a Jew. He's a keeper of the Old Covenant. He starts his ministry at age 30, just like any rabbi would. He's also the guy who ushers in the New Covenant as he declares at the night of the Last Supper. He is the New Covenant. He's the new priesthood. And he decides he has to go to Samaria, which is the land of the enemy. Jews usually walked up the east bank of the Jordan to get up to Galilee. He's going up the western side through Samaria. It's a conscious decision. He decides to do it. Samaritans. I already told you the analogy. People don't like them if they're Jews. The Samaritans are some kind of uh, heathen half-breed. The Assyrians come out of the Nineveh plain, you know Jonah. They come out of the Nineveh plain, come down in 722 B.C., before Christ, Sargon II, defeats them. They disappear from history, the ten tribes of Israel. And what they think is that the, Assyrian, the uh, Samaritans result from that. Part of the proof of that is that the Samaritans believed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So these people are not exactly 
liked by Jews. They built the temple, like I said, and Jews tore it down. Uh, so Jesus decides to walk into the land of the enemy, going up the west side of the Jordan. He's seen with a woman. It's a patriarchal time. Men aren't seen with women in, in, in broad daylight. And she's a woman of ill repute. He's crossing every boundary possible. And he discerns her and her context, and after she decides to listen and to follow him, he disciples her in her village. Shorter, shorter version, Jesus turns his arch enemy into an ambassador. Jesus turns the arch enemy, a heathen half-breed harlot, into an ambassador, modeling his theology of engagement for his disciples then and his disciples now. And what is that theology of engagement? Decide, discern, disciple. And that's what we're going to walk through right now. Decide. This is the hardest thing. Other stuff is not always easy, but if you don't decide to engage, you're never going to engage. It's very easy to stay in your comfort zone. We all know that. It's very easy to stay on the couch, especially on Saturdays with college football. Just, you know, that remote's right there. But he decides, and it means that he's going to walk his talk. It means you have to say what you mean and mean what you say. That's what we were always taught in the Marine Corps. Say what you mean, mean what you say. Don't waste my time. And so he decides to cross every geographic, geopolitical, social, ethnic boundary because he has made up his mind to be seen with you and me. We're the Samaritan woman. We're the sinners furthest from him that doesn't deserve the reconciliation. The wages of sin are death. And there he is, reaching out to us because he decided to do it. Have we decided to be seen with him? Have we decided to be his ambassador? Have we decided to understand that he's already in our vocation and location, and he's just waiting and yearning for us to come alongside what he's already doing? He doesn't need us. He's God. But he's given you the gift of your vocation location. And this time, right now, whatever you're called to next, this is your time to bloom and be his ambassador there. He's there. He just wants some help. Come on. In the fall of uh, 2003, some guy comes up to me at the Institute for Global Engagement where I used to work. And uh, he says, I don't really know what you do. I think you build bridges. But how would you like to meet the freely elected leader of the northwest of Pakistan across the border from Afghanistan where the Taliban are? I'm like, well, you know, I kind of work in Vietnam and Laos. Well, this guy was freely elected, and his electoral platform was anti-Americanism and implementing Sharia law. He's an Islamist. An Islamist means that they want to impose their form of Sharia law on other people. And I'm like, that's a great idea. No. Why would I do that? Besides, I've already talked it over with God, and we've agreed, which means I've declared, I'm doing the communist thing. I do communist, not Islamist. And by the way, communist countries are a lot safer. I don't have any desire to go to Pakistan. God has a sense of humor. I end up going to Pakistan quite a few times. 
Uh, but Jesus was teaching me something. He was teaching me that I needed to see people. I needed to be seen, see them and be seen with them because he made them in his image. But he was going to let me decide. Do you remember the story of Jesus going to uh, Simon the Pharisee's house in Luke 7? And the woman comes, also of ill repute. She's washing his feet with perfume and tears, drying it with the hair. And she looks at him, but he's, she, he's talking to Simon. And he says, do you see her, Simon? This person at the bottom of society. Simon had made up his mind not to see her. Jesus is in the business, and his ambassadors are in the business of seeing her, the very least. So Jesus taught me that I had to decide to love Muslims in the same way I love my own family, in the same way I love him. It sucks to be me. But there, there's not any difference. Dorothy Day once said, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Oh, so much easier to love people I'd already know. And by the way, Jesus went through this too. You know, he's, he's the original ambassador. He got sent, right? And do you remember Luke 22? He's, he's, he's there in the Gethsemane and he says, take this cup from me. He had a choice. He was sent, so he went. He was sent to earth, and he went to the cross. But he had a choice, and he did it for us. He's the ambassador. So here's the question. Who's the Samaritan woman for you after you realize you're looking at her in the mirror? Where's your Samaria? Where's that place that's terribly uncomfortable that you're being called to go into? It could be a person or a place. It's there, though. Are you willing to be seen with a Democrat? Are you willing to be seen with a Republican? Would you be seen with a hokey? Oh, Chris, that's too far. I can't do that. Imagine going to another country and being seen with a prostitute of a different ethnicity and a different faith. Okay, step two, discern. Deciding is the hard part, and that's what we've got to wrestle with most. Discerning. Once you've gotten the game, you're ready, let's go. You've got to discern the dynamics that are at play. And remember, when you're discerning the dynamics, you're the ambassador. You're sent to engage that place, and you don't get to change the message. But you can discern when and how it's delivered according to that person, that context, etc., etc. You can pray for this. Discernment's a spiritual gift. The Lord will give it to you. Jesus sets a pretty simple example. His message is always the same, no me. But his methodology changes every time according to the person. Read the scriptures that way. Look at how Jesus changes his strategy of engagement every, according to the person. We should do the same. Our message is simple, know him, but our strategy for engagement depends on how we discern. So what's the model of discernment that Jesus gives us in engaging this woman? I think it is one of meek submission that affirms her dignity and agency that results in action. Action meaning 
the truth told with love. So let me walk you through that. See the scene with me. Jesus is sitting. The Scripture tells us he's sitting, and we presume she's standing because she's going to get some water. So right away, we see there's some symbolism here. Jesus is stooping below her. She's the lowest part of society. He's the creator of the universe. And we know this is consistent with how he operates. If you read John 8, 1 through 11, the adulterous woman, the language is he stoops before her. John 13, he's washing the feet of his disciples so he can set a model for how he would be known through their love for each other, but he's below them literally washing their feet. She's standing, he's sitting. He asked her for a drink of water. He is ceding power to her. She has the power to refuse him. He does this out of meekness, not out of weakness. Very important to understand the difference between those two words. Weakness is no power. Meekness is power under control. Jesus knows the power that he has, just as you should know the Jesus power that you have. Meekness submitted, giving dignity and agency to this woman who is the least of everybody there. And why does he affirm her dignity? Well, he made her, right? She's made in his image. Why wouldn't he give her dignity? Why wouldn't he honor the capacity to decide for herself because she has freedom of conscience? I think freedom of conscience is the greatest gift from God, greater than grace, because without freedom of conscience, you can't choose grace freely. What kind of God makes people that can reject him? He gives us the choice. He's engaging her, submitting to her, giving her agency and affirmation, and she responds. Okay. So what is this scene? What is, she, what is going on? He's sitting, he's sitting, he's asking her, and who is she? Let's just go through that one more time. She's a four-time loser. She's an ethnic minority. She's a religious minority. She's a woman in a patriarchal society. She doesn't have voice or vote. And she's a woman of ill repute. She's at the well by herself. Likely because no other women would be seen with her. Probably because she's known some of their husbands. She's a pariah. She is an outcast among outcasts. And there's our Lord looking up to her who everybody else looks down on. That's unconditional love. That's who he is, and that's who he calls you to be as his ambassador. Now, if you're a type A former Marine American, America, I can, these colors don't run, this is a really hard one to, to get through, right? My theory of discernment is I've got the answer, you need it, here I come, fire ready, aim. That's, how, that's what we do. Discernment? Who needs that? 
The best part about traveling around the world, even with people like Joel, is <laughs> talk about a study in compassion. No, just the best part about traveling around the world is um, for, for someone like me, you're just smart enough to realize you have no idea what's going on. Okay? It's different in America. We think we know what's going on. But, and so when I'm overseas and I've got jet lag and I'm going into these meetings, you're just smart enough to go, man, what am I doing here? And there's so much that I will never know, <laughs> which means you become aware that you should be totally dependent upon God. So you start praying. I pray a lot more when I'm overseas, just serious confession. And I pray for discernment. I pray what to do. And uh, many times the following has happened to me, especially in Vietnam. But I'll be in a meeting, and this idea will pop into my head. And my American mentality is, well, i got to share it because I want to be first. You ain't first, you're last. Right, Ricky Bobby? And um, the Lord, I pray, and the Lord says, one, says three words to me all the time. And I hear it very clearly. You know what they are? Disciple, shut up. Keep your freaking mouth shut. So this idea comes in. Here's what I've learned. If the idea pops up in the conversation, then I know it's the Holy Spirit. If it doesn't pop up, I know it's just one of my other dumb ideas. <laughs> and once you know it, many times what I popped into my head comes out from somebody who lives there. Now I have an opportunity to come alongside them and submit to them meekly and give them agency and give them voice and to serve them. Submitting is hard. It's very hard. And like I said, when I come home, it's, I, I, don't, I just don't think the same way because I'm so used to the rituals and the patterns. And so the questions, the questions for me and for all of us is, when and how do you submit? How do you submit to your spouse? How do you submit to your kids? How do you submit to work? Those kinds of things. You should be asking yourself this as you think about discernment because I don't think you can discern without submission. Meekly submitted. So in practicing this discernment, born of meek submission, what results is this posture of humility and listening. That's what Jesus is modeling for us. He earns the right to speak into the relationship with her because of the meek submission, because of honoring her agency and her freedom of conscience that he has given her. And when you earn the right to speak into a relationship, it also requires that there be action. Okay? And what is the action? Well, it's truth with love. Um, and what does he say to her? That's not your husband. You are the previous five guys. So judgmental. Cancel him. But he's earned the right to say it because he loves her and she knows it. She's looking down at him and she knows that he loves her. When I was in college, I turned in a 15-page draft paper to this professor that I liked, and I knew he liked me, and I was excited about it, and I was excited to get it back because I wanted to hear about how good I was. You know, it, it was a pretty good paper. 
And uh, I got it back the next week, and there was nothing on the front, and I turned it over, and there's this long letter, Dear Chris. <laughs> Handwritten. You know, nobody does that anymore. In cursive. And um, the first sentence, your writing is tortuous and convoluted. <laughs> oh, man. You want to talk about sail leaving your, wind leaving your sails. But he said it to me not because he was trying to put me down. He said it because it was true. <laughs> and he said it because he loved me. I knew he did. He was doing what was a teacher should do. And he had earned the right to say it to me because of how he conducted himself in the classroom with me and with all the other students. And so therefore, I was ready to receive it. So that's the question. Are we willing to receive the truth with love from other people? Are we willing to say the truth with love to other people because we've earned the right to speak it? You know, Leviticus 19.18 is love God, love neighbor. We love that. Leviticus 19.17, loose translation, is rebuke or be a part of the problem. You've got to do both. There's got to be discipline. You can't be excellent without discipline. And you need people who hold you accountable. Okay, step three, discipleship. And this is where we really begin to learn that we, if we're going to love our neighbor, we have to love them in a language and logic that they understand, or it's, it's not love. You may think it's love, but it's not received that way. So what does discipleship mean? Well, here we're going to take a step back and uh, bring two things together, theology and geography in a word I made up called theography. So Jesus is in Sychar, right? Sychar is 20 miles north of Bethel. Bethel, Genesis 28. Jacob alone sees the stairway to heaven. That's where Led Zeppelin got it. It's a stairway to heaven, and many of the church fathers felt that he was that was foreshadowing the cross. I think that's true. Stairway to heaven, the cross is the only way. Genesis 35 is when he has promised the same promises as Abraham. You're going to be a father of a great nation and a community of nations. Jesus is 20 miles north of Bethel. Well, he's also 20 miles west of the Jabbok River in Peniel. This is where Jacob wrestles with the angel in Genesis 32. Wrestles all night till he earns a new name, Israel. And then he goes forth and he's an ambassador of reconciliation going to Esau. He's also 20 miles south of Dothan. I know that was your next thought. <laughs> Dothan is where his sons betray him and their brother Joseph and they throw him in a well. So your first thought is, you're thinking about the movie, Oh Brother, We're Out Thou. Well, ain't that a geographical oddity? We're 20 miles from everywhere. <laughs> Your second thought is, these, guys, these things are key to the story of the Jews. If they don't come with Jacob and settle there and then go to the Egypt because of the famine, there's no Jews. No Jews, no Jesus. Jesus is speaking from the epicenter of Jewish identity and purpose. 
I think he knows this a thousand percent. He knows exactly where he is, and he's speaking to this enemy. Remember what Paul said, remembering Christ Jesus, raised from the dead, descendant of David. Matthew tells us there's 14 generations between Abraham and David. That takes place because of this. God acts in history. It's not some abstract thought. He uses them. What does Joseph say in Egypt? What man intended for evil, God used for good. So, here's Jesus speaking in Sikar, sitting down, looking up at the one that everybody else looks down on, and he's talking about living water, not worshiping at Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem's spirit and truth. And, you know, it's, he's, she's probably reacting like many of us do. Maybe you are right now. Like, your eyes are beginning to glaze over. Blah, 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 blah. And he's speaking to her, but he's stirring her soul some way because she's not stupid. And she's thinking back to her Samaritan Sunday, Sunday school, and she's like, Deuteronomy, that's the fifth book of the Torah. The Samaritans believe in the Torah. And something like Deuteronomy 18.15 is coming to her head, but she can't quote it, of course. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Deuteronomy 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. She believes that. She knows that. She can't reference it. And what does she say? What does she muster as he talks about all this stuff? She recognizes the moment like Rahab and says, are you that guy? Are you the Messiah? And how does he respond? He responds with the language of the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. I am he. He announces himself to her. Think about this. He doesn't come back and announce himself as the Son of God to the religious establishment. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not with the Pharisees. He doesn't go to the Romans, the geopolitical power to announce himself, whose power he allows. He's not going to the religious or the Romans, but the most reviled. The ultimate top-down creator of the universe going to the ultimate bottom-up, heathen, half-breed, harlot, arch-enemy of the Jews. And what is he saying? This is your neighbor. This is how you engage. This is unconditional love. And then he spends two days with him, and what does he do? He does the same thing he does with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember, they don't recognize who he is. He's like, oh, geez, you guys don't get it. Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses, the Torah, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Old Testament predicts Jesus, New Testament presents him. This is the risen, reigning, returning king. Salvation comes from the Jews, and this is what Paul will claim in Acts 13 when he's up in Pisidian Antioch. And he quotes Isaiah 42.6 or 49.6, depending on what you want, because the Jews are called to be a light unto all the nations. That's the mission. 
And that's why we need Jesus, because the Jews failed in that mission, and now Jesus is coming as the perfect priest, as Hebrews tells us, the indestructible life, the new priesthood for the new covenant. Okay. So here are the questions for us at this point. Here is our church, the broader body, this church, the church I go to, is it edifying and equipping us to engage so that we can disciple? Who are you discipling? And who's discipling you? Are you in those relationships? So let's conclude. Do you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Religious leaders go by. They ignore the man who fell among thieves. He's hurting, he's suffering, he's near death, he's lying on the road, and a Samaritan helps him. A Samaritan who is from the same people group as this woman, the arch enemy. And I think Jesus is using irony and not a little bit of humor to chide the majority culture into understanding what he's saying. You Jews, we Jews, this is our mission given to us by our Father. And it's for everybody. Whosoever believes in him. Do you remember the ethnicity of the man who fell among thieves, the one that the Good Samaritan helped? It's a trick question. Scripture doesn't tell us. You know why it doesn't tell us? You know why Jesus doesn't tell us? Because it don't matter. It doesn't matter what his ethnicity was or what he believed, what race, region, or religion. We love him. Just as we love the Samaritan woman. Jesus preaches, teaches, and reaches his disciples then and now by loving living out the parable of the Good Samaritan by loving the Bad Samaritan. After the Samaritan woman left the village, went back to go to the village and tell everybody, the disciples come back, we didn't read this, but he says to his disciples, I tell you, because they're aghast that he's even talking to her, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields, they are ripe for harvest. We can't harvest unless we engage. We can't engage unless we understand what it means to be an ambassador. We can't be an ambassador unless we decide, discern, and disciple. It's that simple and that hard. For God so loved the world, he's calling us to be excellent. A world mired in mediocrity, a world longing to be excellent, a world longing for meaning, and he's asking us to go. So, Last set of questions. Because you have decided to be his ambassador in your vocation and location, to whom will you submit meekly? And how? Because you have discerned who your neighbor is, will you speak and receive the truth with love? And because you have been discipled and disciple, what geographic, gender, social, political boundaries will you cross at all costs to love your neighbor on behalf of Jesus? just as he did. This is our 3D theology of engagement. Decide, discern, disciple. And we look, need look no further than our king in John 4. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. We began a series called Non-Anxious Presence last week. You've just heard one glowing example of what that looks like. 
And so now the question is for us. And I want to ask our pastors, deacons, if you would join me around these four crosses as we want to give you an opportunity to respond right now. Um, we, we asked a question some years ago that we're going to ask again after the first of the year, and that is, who's your one? Who is it that God is calling you to cross a boundary to reach? Who is God calling you to love that you'd rather not love? How are you going to bring this display of the kingdom of God into their world? In just a moment, you're going to see men and women probably going to be wearing lanyards under these, any of these four crosses. Those are pastors and deacons ready to pray with you, ready to counsel with you. Whether it has anything to do with what you've heard or not, perhaps you have a need and you need to make that need known, uh, and we're here for you. Now is your time to respond. Would you pray with me? And then we're going to stand and sing together. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the word that we've just heard. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that you give us to be ambassadors so that everywhere our feet touch the ground, there is the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, enlarge our vision and enlarge our capacity to make those disciples, we pray. And may it begin in these next few moments as we make a decision to respond to you in obedience and humility. And I ask these things in his name. Amen. Will you stand with me? Let's sing together. This is my father's world and to
seated. It's been a great day, hasn't it? Wonderful, wonderful day. We have a ministry spotlight this afternoon as you pass through those doors. It is time for Operation Christmas Child. Many of you have already gathered those shoe boxes. If you want to know how you can be involved, those volunteers are right through the door. And I've just been asked to mention that as we uh, prepare for one final act of worship. That is the worship of the Lord through giving. And so you can go to give2covenant.com, to covenantexperience.com, or if you brought your offering with you in just a moment, the ushers are going to pass the plate as we worship in that way. Thank you so much for coming. Chris, thank you for coming up from Warrington and sharing God's word with us. I love you. I'm so glad that our church family has finally gotten to meet you. And I'll ask you once we pray, if you just join me in the back, you can take any one of your kids with you. And because um, I know, well, for one thing, there'll be a lot of Marines that'll want to talk to you. And given that wonderful introduction, I'm certain there are also soldiers and sailors and airmen that'll want to have a word with you. It's going to be great. <laughs> uh, wonderful, wonderful intermission in between services. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear about the world that is yours. And that, Father, we can be meek. And we can be discerning because the world already belongs to you. Lord, there's nothing to take over. There's nothing to defend. There is simply someone to represent. And so I thank you for one who's come to, to give us a great example of what that looks like today. May we embody that as we move forward as your body today, as we serve the world that you died to save. I thank you for the opportunity now to worship you through giving, and we pray for those who give and the gifts. Use these for the upbuilding of your kingdom. I thank you for the radical generosity of your people. And Lord, I just pray that you would bless us in this moment as we finally uh, give and then as we're dismissed. And I pray these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.